Today we're beginning a new series that I've entitled God's Great Story. And many Christians oftentimes struggle with how to best understand the Bible. Now we can read it and make sense of certain parts of it, but the bigger question is how does the whole Bible fit together? Whether you're a new believer or you've been a believer a long time or maybe you're not even a Christian at all, When it comes to reading the Bible and making sense of it as a whole, sometimes that can feel like a daunting task. It kind of feel like a stereogram. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those sheets of paper that they say, hold it up to your nose for like five to seven seconds and then slowly move it back and you're supposed to see that hidden object. I was never very good at that. And like, yeah, I think I see it and it's a cat. No, actually, it's a person. You know, sometimes I think we can approach the Bible like that. If we just stare at it long enough, if we just read it enough times, maybe it will make sense as the whole. You know, some approach the Bible like a list of rules. Here's all these things you have to do. Here's all these other things you can't do. And while the Bible certainly contains rules, it's not just a list of rules. Others approach the Bible kind of like a self-help book. You're struggling with anxiety, where's a verse that talks to that? If you're depressed, if you're afraid, if you need some help with your marriage, if you need this, find a verse that will fit your situation. Certainly the Bible addresses all sorts of things in life, but the Bible is not a self-help book. Still others think of the Bible kind of like a book on theology, all these different things that we're supposed to believe about God. And there is obviously theology in the Bible, But the Bible is not a theology textbook. No, the Bible ultimately is a story. Now, don't let that bother you. It's a true story with real events that really happened. But it's a story of God's plan to glorify himself by saving sinners like you and me. From Genesis to Revelation, we find one story written by over 40 different human authors over the span of 1,500 years. Some have called this story the story of redemption. And in that story, you find four acts. Act 1, creation. Act 2, the fall. Act 3, redemption. And Act 4, consummation or recreation. That's a helpful way, and that's really going to be our framework for the next four weeks as we walk through understanding the Bible as a whole. And so today we're in Act 1, creation. We're going to be looking at the very beginning. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 1. You'll find in your pew Bible, I believe, on page 1. So really easy to find. Uh, Or you can find the text printed in the bulletin. We're going to be reading all of Genesis 1. So I'll read the text for us. But before I do, let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessing and his help. Gracious God, you've told us that all Scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's word, Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. 
And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and for seasons, and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Many years ago, Sir Isaac Newton had made for him an exact replica, a miniature of our solar system. At the center, of course, was a yellow sphere representing the sun, and around it were other spheres that were the different planets, the Earth and Moon, or the Mars and Mercury, and Jupiter and the like. It was all held together by different cogs and gears and belts, so it would revolve around the sun in perfect harmony. 
One day Newton was studying this model and noticing some different details, and a friend comes in, and this friend is one who did not believe in the creation account of Genesis 1. And he marveled at the device and took it in for a little bit, and then he exclaimed, Why, Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made this for you? Without looking up, Sir Isaac Newton replied, Nobody. Nobody? That's right, replied Newton, nobody. All these balls and cogs and bells and gears just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their set orbits and with perfect timing. You know, we could laugh at the humor and sarcasm of a brilliant man like Sir Isaac Newton, but the question that his friend asked, I think, is an important one. Who made this? When we look at the world around us, that's an important question for you and I to ask. Who made this? But it's even more important for us to answer it, for how we answer the question, who made this, will impact how we approach our everyday life. God's great story begins with creation. We're going all the way back to the beginning, to the first page of the Bible, to the beginning of God's story, Genesis 1. You know, we could spend weeks on this first chapter. There is so much here. We're really just going to hit the highlights today. I want us to notice two things. First, I want us to understand creation. And then secondly, I want us to apply it, see what difference it makes for our life. So first, understanding creation. What are we to make of these 31 verses that begin the Bible? Well, look with me at verse 1. How does it begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right there out of the gate, we're presented with a question. In the beginning, in the beginning of what? In the beginning of everything? Does this mean that God has a beginning? Well, no, surely not. All the Bible tells us that God has always been. No, it means rather the beginning of time and space. And see, what this means is that God exists outside of time and space. And for our limited, finite minds, this is hard to understand. For you and I are bound by time and space. We can't be in two places at once. But God, as a spirit, can be everywhere. God has always been and always will be. A couple of months ago, my son Bo asked me a question. Daddy, does God have a birthday? That's a good question, right? And so we talked about how we celebrate Jesus' birthday. Kids, when do we celebrate Jesus' birthday? Christmas, that's right. But God the Father doesn't have a birthday, and when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating when Jesus took on human form for the second person of the Trinity has always existed. In the beginning, God. The focus here is on God. The term for God here is Elohim. It means strength or might. And it's in the plural. It denotes his majesty. It's also a subtle hint at the Trinity. In verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's an explicit reference to the third person of the Trinity, to the Holy Spirit being involved in creation. So we see God the Father at work. We see the Holy Spirit at work. But what about the second person of the Trinity? No, it's Jesus. Well, the New Testament helps us out with that. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says, speaking of Jesus, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
So we see all three members of our triune God at work in creation. And what did God do here in the beginning? It says he created the heavens and the earth. That means he created everything. The word there, create, in Hebrew is bara. It has this idea of creating out of nothing. It's only ever used of God. There's other words talking about humans making things in the Bible, but only this word is used of God, showing that God's work of creation is separate from anything else in the universe. So what theologians call creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. How did God make everything out of nothing? Notice verse 3, And God said. He simply spoke. Kids, would you like to have a power kind of like this? Let there be pizza. Let there be chocolate. And poof, right there in front of you. But can you do that? No. Neither can I. But that's part of what makes God's work of creation so amazing. He spoke and it came into being. Now let's think about the days of creation for a minute. I don't want to walk through all the details. We read it. You can go back and look through what was created when. But I want to zoom out for a minute. Look at the high points of creation. Remember, Scripture is always trying to teach us something about God and how he relates to us and how we relate to him. We zoom out, we see there's a pattern here. The first three days are days of separation. Look at verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. So day one, God separates the light from darkness. Day two, God separates the waters above from the waters below. And on day three, God separates the bodies of water on the earth so that there is dry land and there's oceans and seas and lakes and rivers. You got three days of separation and then three days of filling. Day four, God fills the sky with the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, he fills the sea with fish and the air with birds. On day six, he fills the earth with animals and then with Adam and Eve. What this teaches us is that God is a God of order. So part of how we, it's part of how we know that God is a good Presbyterian. He likes things done decently and in good order. You know, but, but in all seriousness, we do see the orderly nature of God in the work of creation. And these days go together. There's a connection. Days one and four go together. Days two and five, days three and six, they're connected, teaching us about what God is doing. Now, how are we to understand the word day here in Genesis 1? If you have all thought about this or looked into it, you know there's great debate among Christians. How do we understand the word day? Much ink has been spilt over this issue. And in, the, in our denomination, if you're going to be a minister, there's really three positions to understanding the word day. The first is that day refers to a literal 24-hour period. It's the most straightforward understanding the second is that the day, a day could be an age, a period of longer time, a thousand years or something like that. And in various places in Scripture, the word day is used that way. Third, the word day can be understood as a structure in a literary framework designed to illustrate the orderly nature of God's creation. Again, not a specific 24-hour period, but a greater time that we don't really know because the Bible doesn't tell us. 
The second and third options seem to uh, allow for the earth to be older, while the 24-hour understanding seems to be that the earth is younger. However, we have to remember that God very well could have made the world with the appearance of age. Made trees, what do they look like? Were they little tiny saplings or were they full-grown trees? We don't know because the text doesn't tell us. Moreover, the genealogies found in the Bible aren't meant to stack up together. There's gaps in them. There's a man by the name of James Usher a number hundreds of years ago tried to line up all the genealogies. He said, I think the world was made about 6,000 years ago sometime in the spring. That's not how we understand the genealogies in the Bible. The fact of the matter is we don't know when the world was created. There's different acceptable interpretations of the word day. But I believe what is ruled out is the idea of evolution. That we just evolved, that somehow a big bang happened and we just came here. Even theistic evolution I do not think is compatible with Genesis 1. I do hold to a literal 24-hour day. I think that's the best reading of Genesis 1. It is narrative, it's not poetry. But there's acceptable room for difference. As long as we understand the main thing, that God is the one who created. We have to keep in mind that Genesis 1 is theological in nature rather than scientific. Now that doesn't mean that the Bible and science are at odds. No, they are compatible 100%. But Genesis 1 is teaching truths about how God made by speaking and why he did it for his glory. It's not teaching us when he did it nor exactly how it all came to be. We must not try to force the Bible today to say something the Bible doesn't say. The main point of Genesis 1 is that God created the world. He made everything out of nothing. He made us in his image. Every single person has intrinsic worth and value because they're made in the image of Almighty God. And all that God created exists for his glory. So what does all this mean? How do we apply it to our daily life? Well, I briefly want to mention three truths we're called to believe about God. Because remember, this text is all about God. First, God is great. When we look at the fact that only God existed before the foundation of the world, we're reminded of God's greatness. You know, one of the devastating impacts of sin is that we're prone to think of ourselves as great. I'm great. We might not say it, but we probably think it. We tell stories to make ourselves look great. We tell our kids and grandkids, you're great. And not to diminish the worth of our children and grandchildren, but God alone is great. He's eternal. Before time and space were, God was. He's always been, and he always will be. Amen? The works of creation remind us just how great our God is. The majestic nature of the Milky Way galaxy, the Niagara Falls, or the Grand Canyon are designed to point to his greatness. A journalist and lecturer named Hendrik von Loon went to the Grand Canyon for the first time, and he had one sentence to say afterwards. I came an atheist. I leave a believer. The magnitude and beauty of our created world points to the greatness of God. How does this impact our lives? Well, it keeps us in our place. Author Paul David Tripp says the doctrine of creation reminds us that life is a glory war. His point is that sin causes us to worship ourselves and to worship other people rather than worshiping God, the creator. 
The Apostle Paul makes the same point in Romans 1. Think of our call to worship this morning, Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Creation reminds us that God is great. He is worthy of our worship. How can God's creation drive you to a deeper worship of the Lord God? The second truth we're to believe about God when we look at creation is that God is powerful. Remember, he spoke the world into existence. He created everything out of nothing. That is true power. And the same God who spoke the world into existence powerfully rules over the world now. He cares for the world with the same power with which he made it. What impact does this have? Well, it gives us peace that no matter what is going on in our life, God is in control. When your life seems out of control and you don't know what to do or where to turn, rest in the God who is in control. When you turn on the news and you're tempted to despair about how awful things are in the world, take hope that God is in control. When you get that awful diagnosis from the doctor, you're getting ready to go away to college for the first time, remember, God is in control. And since he's in control, we're meant to live life for him. Since God made everything, he gets the say of how it's to work. What we need to do on a daily basis is ask things like, God, what is your desire for fill in the blank? God, what is your desire for my time, for my job, for my free time, for my children, for my grandchildren, for my finances? for this church, for this community. God is so powerful. He's in control, and he calls the shots on how the world operates. The final truth we see here in Genesis 1 is that God is good. At the end of each day of creation, do you remember the evaluation? And God saw that it was what? It's good. Seven times that phrase is repeated, and the seventh time it says that it was very good. Seven in the Bible is a number of completion, perfection, showing that everything God did in creation was oh so good. And yet it points to God himself, who is the embodiment of goodness. Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, no one is good except God alone. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. In the face of health concerns, remember God is good. In the face of a pastoral search, remember, God is good. In the midst of forest fires, God is good. In the wake of the loss of one of your loved ones, God is good. You and I must dare to believe that God really is good. He's far better, far more good than we could ever imagine. And the perfect way we know this is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection between creation and the gospel? The same God who spoke light into darkness speaks light into our hearts through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's goodness. If you know Christ, rest in his goodness. If you don't know him, come to him today. 
As we come to this table, remember, God is so good. Same God who spoke the world in existence speaks his words of goodness to us in his word and at his table. Let us pray.